IMHO. You may have seen the acronym. It's been used a lot lately on social media, having conversations, discussion, debate, where we need to say, in my humble opinion, in my humble opinion, I-M-H-O. Would we do anything else, though? Like, does anyone say, I-M-P-O, in my prideful opinion? Trying to be humble is a tricky business. Talking about humility is a tricky business. Because if you're going to be seeking to be humble or saying, in my humble opinion, or or showing yourself to be humble in any way, you know that it's one of those self-defeating things where it could actually mean, well, it looks like you're just doing the opposite, doesn't it? There's a phenomenon called the humble brag. You may have heard of humble brag. It's when someone's being humble, but they're kind of, they're tucking in there, sneaking in there, the kind of the brag as they're being humble. It's not one of those ones you necessarily want to call out in someone else because you know that it's so potentially possible I could have humble brag in my life. We all can. I looked up some humble brags, not because, you know, I didn't think of any of my own life. I could. But um, there's actually whole websites devoted to the 50, 50 best humble brags ever given. I picked out just a few. These are are said by famous people, I won't say who, I don't think that's necessary, but you can tell how humility is one of those things that our society wants, but struggles with the concept of how do you actually get it. So someone wrote this on Twitter, I just did something very selfless, you immediately know this is not going very well. I just did something very selfless, now I need to tell everyone about it, but more importantly it was genuine. And I know it means a lot to the person in the long run. Hashtag, so worth it. The next one, someone wrote, I just stepped on gum. Who spits gum on the red carpet? Lastly, for this morning, because these are a bit cringy, aren't they? Someone wrote, I find it incomprehensible that I'm now booking my life past July of next year. And that one's a bit more close to home, isn't it? Because we can feel that. We're all busy, I get that. Someone said to me lately, I know how busy you are. And I said, I'm not busy, actually. I'm limited. Like, really, I can't do everything. That's one of the other areas that tests our humility, isn't it? The reason that I struggle with saying no to things and I want to do everything and serve people in everything that's possible is because... Well, we're tempted to look like we're just so able to do everything, aren't we? We're tempted to to break past the humility of just saying no. I'm just saying no. I'm just saying I'm limited to this. To talk about humility is a risky business. And to be the one talking about humility, can, can I feel like you're the judge or measure of what makes someone humble? If you look up bookshops online like Reformers, Kurong, there are almost innumerable books that are either written directly on humility or relate to humility. And authors know if you're going to write a book on humility, well, the people around you who know you, that could be the book that actually, well, 
causes your reputation to be tarnished a bit if you're not humble. Humility. It's something that escapes us. Humility is such a compelling virtue, isn't it? Particularly in our time when there's so much posturing of pride. There's so much in our world that we see pride just pushes relationships away, pushes people away. It even pushes churches away from one another. People are are pushed away by pride, but humility we know deep down could do something different. Humility could heal us. And this is what the Apostle Paul is writing today. This is what God's Word is saying today, that we need to look to one another with humility. This is where he starts in Philippians 2, verse 1. The context, of course, chapter 1, he's writing to a church just like us, and God is speaking to us. It's a church that's relatively healthy, but it's a church that also has pitfalls and potential problems just like us. Friends, we've got real problems as a church, haven't we? Can we admit that? We've got real problems because there's people like me in this church who have problems, who need to admit that we're wrong, who need to admit that we're weak, who need to say, well, it's Christ is our strength and Christ is our forgiveness. This is us. And we need to look to one another with humility. Look at verse 1. Hear these words. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Listen to those words. When you hear that, it sounds like the motto of a school, doesn't it? Encouragement, comfort, participation. Sounds like it'll be on the billboard for the front of the school. But when you hear these words, what should they sound like? These are the words, the very things you ought to be able to find in your church. These are the things that we can have live large in our lives. Christians can and do experience these things of being in Christ. Because joining the church is more than initiation into an address book. It's an initiation into one another's lives. And so Paul reasons in the following verse, in verse 2, if you have these things... And the answer has to be for a church, yes, yes, yes. So if you you have a local church where there's zero encouragement, if you have a local church where there's zero comfort from love, a local church where there's zero participation in the Spirit, you've got to ask the question, why? But Paul's implicit answer is for the Philippians, and I would hope for us, yes. Okay then, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. You see this? Being like-minded, the same love, one spirit, one purpose, this is the stuff that churches are made of. This is team spirit. This is Paul's joy. And it makes sense in the context of this letter to the church at Philippi. They've been like this This is what Paul celebrates. He thanks them for their partnership in the gospel we saw in chapter 1. But now you've got to ask a question. Why does he need to write this now? Like, if they're already doing this well, why would these words need to be written? Because we suspect that even the Philippian church was not always like this. 
It's possible for churches to grow in health, isn't it? It's possible for churches to grow in health and to be happy in Jesus. And it's also possible for pride to creep in and we feel like we're doing well. We're a growing church, we're a healthy church and then all of a sudden the pride comes and then there's a fall. Paul writes to a church he knows is not perfect and this is given to us to a church that we know we're not perfect. And although unity is incredibly enjoyable, it's not always found. Paul has expressed this already. Chapter 1, he writes of people who preach Christ from envy and rivalry. That's a weird thought, but it's a true thing for him and it's true for us. We see it in our world today. Then we see from Philippians 4 verse 2 from this local church. If you go across chapter 4 and have a look, I do hope you get your Bible open because that's where God speaks. In chapter 4 verse 2, put your eyes on those words. 4 verse 2, Paul has to plead, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Suntike to agree in the Lord. These are two women, he says, verse 3, so also ask you, my true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side, that language again, side by side with me and the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names in the book of life, they're Christians, they've worked side by side, they've served others, and yet they're not agreeing in the Lord. Is that possible? Is it possible to have a church of people where people don't agree? Yes. And, and the church at Philippi is one of the healthiest churches in the New Testament. And yet they have people not agreeing. And what does Paul say? What we need is the Lord. We need Jesus. Friends, we've said this before, we'll say it again. Conflict is not the opportunity to fight or flee. Conflict is often, particularly in local church, an opportunity for the gospel. Conflict is an opportunity for the gospel. Now, yes... There are particular people that we need particular help with when it comes to conflict. There are very difficult situations that you and I have perhaps seen or lived out. And that's a particular case. And if you're in those cases, come and get help, receive help. But conflict, where there's just disagreement, and you know what that's like, disagreement. Whereas Christians, we agree on all these things, but there's this one thing we disagree on. And so we're so tempted to push away from each other in our pride, and Paul says, no, conflict is an opportunity to talk about Jesus and how the Lord of love brings us together for love. And so he writes these things to a church that is relatively healthy, they do love one another, they partner with Paul, and yet he says, he says here in this letter, verse, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition. Or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but the interests of others. I like to summarize this by saying, uh, you know, a memorable, I hope it's memorable, but it basically means we need to, we get to forsake self for the sake of others. Forsake self for the sake of others, for that's what Jesus has done for us. 
the great hymn writer Charles Wesley, if you're going to have categories of great people, was a great person. He had his own problems and you can read his biographies and find those ones out. But Charles Wesley, to this day, has written the most number of hymns, poems and songs in the English language, 5,000 of them. No one has surpassed Charles Wesley's record for the number of uh, songs and poems written in the English language. And yet, it was said of Charles Wesley, as much as it was tempting for him to be a bit self-obsessed, it was said of him that when others were celebrated around him, he not only celebrated, he delighted in the superiority of others. He delighted in it. He laughed, he had joy in someone else being celebrated and not himself. Makes sense if you're singing songs and writing songs about Jesus. Your heart's posture will determine how you look at one another. Your heart's posture to Christ will shape how you look to others. Because everyone in our natural world, natural born sinners, don't look for others. We don't look for the other. We don't consider that that person's got a lot going on in their life and and maybe the way in which they've failed me may have other things attached to it. We don't consider that. We just consider me, first of all. It's me. It's about me. And ever since Genesis 3, it's been me, me, me. It's easy to prove. And in all honesty, it's especially in me. For if you were just to get me as a case example, case in point, you get me and, and you were to kind of reboot me, like restart the hard drive, I would still go to the default system, operating system of being selfish. Because I'm a natural born sinner. But the gospel is the power that changes that. The gospel changes the trend of selfish relationships. So we don't need to rival people. We don't need to be selfish. We get to actually be humble and it's healthy for us. Counting others more significant than you, than me. C.S. Lewis, you know, Narnia, Chronicles, Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe, famous quote, you may know it, he said this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not going, oh, I'm so bad, I'm so poor, poor old me. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not degrading yourself, but it's just thinking of yourself less. And you do that by, instead of thinking of me, it's looking to you, looking to others, to your interests. How can I love you? How can I serve you? What can I lay down for you? And friends, we're now at the point, almost the top of the mountain of climbing this difficult task and it feels almost too hard for us, doesn't it? Because there's so much need around us and I am so limited. And I will fail and people will point at my failings and as I try and serve people humbly, then people will just pile on and we go, well, I'm not going to do it anymore. Because... I need to look after my own interests. And we find humility and looking to other person's interests too hard. So how can we possibly do this? How on earth can we possibly do this? The solution is because God came to earth.
Jesus humbled himself. Look at verse 5. This is the key command in this passage. This is the key imperative. There's two imperatives in this passage. The first one is when Paul says, complete my joy. And it's kind of his preface, his leading up to the big picture. And here it is in verse 5. Here in the middle of this passage is the big command, the big imperative. And he says this, Church, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That is, if you're part of a church, you're a Christian, to be a member of this church, you've got to be a Christian person. That's the entry level. If you're a Christian, you're, you, you have your faith in Christ alone. Therefore, you're in Christ and the union with Christ language is it's replete, it's repeated throughout Scripture. You're in Christ. If you're in Christ, which is yours in Christ Jesus, here's what we are commanded to do. Have this mind. In other words, have his mind among us. And notice the plurality of it. It's not just for a couple of individuals. It's not just for the the leadership team or the elders or the pastor. It's among ourselves. Have this mind among us. And what is that mind? It's the mindset of Christ. We have union with him and now we have to have his mindset among us. Some scholars call what follows from verse 5 onwards the hymn of Christ. They call it a hymn of Christ because it's beautifully structured. When you look at it in this hymn, we see God in his glorious nature. We see the Son of God in his pre-existing nature. God eternal come down to earth in his incarnation and then in his death and resurrection he then ascends as king as again if you were to graph it for the mathematical among us it looks like this kind of curve from high it goes down low off the charts low to then off the charts high So the graph would start somewhere else, enter the page, go down below the page, then come up and hit the page, and then go off the page again. This hymn of Christ shows us a picture of the gospel, of its heights and depths. And we see what God has done in Christ. There are lots of missionary societies that form. We support them. There are people like Compassion, people like Australian Presbyterian World Mission, all sorts of missionary societies have been formed, some of them in recent history, some of them a couple hundred years ago. But you know, it's actually God who is the first missionary society. It's God who is the first missionary sending agency. For God the Father sends the Son and Jesus Christ is the first missionary. He comes into the world, into this place, Foreign to him for sin, but he made it. We broke it. We are the ones in the garden who quickly lead ourselves up the garden path. We are the ones who break the whole thing and God comes to rescue the whole thing. Jesus comes to save the humans. And so we see, have this mind among yourselves. And what does that mind look like? Verse 6, here's the mindset. That Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God. Though he was in the form of God. So the language that's literally used is morphe theu. 
you know, metamorphosis, morphe, the form, though he was in the form of God. And this is the stuff of John's Gospels, isn't it? We looked at John's Gospel early this year. Though he was God himself, the pre-existing eternal son, we then read, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now at this point, some scholars stop and they debate what it means that the God-man emptied himself. Uh, the Greek New Testament word that's used here is kenoo, and so people, you know, there's a thing called kenosis and they, they write books on it and debate it and discuss it. And What does it mean that he emptied himself? Could Jesus Christ as the God-man, could he play pool and, you know, over there of morning tea, could he, like, knock the first ball, break, breaker, it's called the break, I think. It's my pool language knowledge at its very limit. You know, could he, could he make the break and all the balls go in? Or is he just not able to play pool that well? In fact, more than pool and that kind of stuff, is he limited and he couldn't do all the things that God does? Is, is he so emptied of himself that he loses some glory or he loses some attributes of God? Is that what it means that he empties himself? Scholars debate this, discuss this, write books upon books upon books about this. I read some of them this week. Yes, whole books, just on that phrase. Just because I wanted to reorientate myself in that world. And you know what the conclusion is in the end? It just means that he emptied himself. Because it's explained in the very next clause. He becomes a servant. He becomes a human. That is, the contrast is given to us in the text. You don't need to read the books. What a relief. You don't need to get involved in the discussions and debates. What a relief. It's been done for you by and large by trustworthy scholars. But look at this. It's in the text, friends. Have a look. He emptied himself because by yet being in the form of God, that's the contrast, the first part of the contrast, he's God himself. The second part is a direct contrast. He who is God becomes a servant, an actual servant. You see, theology or thinking about God should fill us with awe. The incarnation should stop us in our tracks to marvel like it did the wise men who are stopped in their tracks to worship Christ. For here is God of all who becomes small. So, kenosis, this emptying himself, it's simply that God humbles himself to become a servant. Jesus Christ didn't think having equality with God was something to be grasped for, for benefit or privileges for himself. He himself made himself nothing. He does what Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 tells us to do. Notice this. You could replace the imperatives for us with Jesus. Jesus does nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, Jesus considers others more significant than himself. 
Jesus looks not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Jesus, who in the form of God, in the very nature of God, God the Son, verse 6, came into the world as a servant, as a human, verse 7, found in human form. Friends, that is how Jesus' mind works. That's his mindset. And it's meant to be ours. When you think about what it would be like to have power, where does your mind go? Now, I'm not talking, you, you may dream of being the President of the United States. Wow. Would that be power? You can't, actually. I don't deflate that bubble, but you're not allowed to because you've got to be born in the United States. We've been through this a couple of elections ago. Maybe you want to be Prime Minister of Australia. Yeah. I don't know. Doesn't seem that great a job. But where else would you exercise power? You might not be President or Prime Minister or even Premier. The Mayor of Bendigo? I don't even know who that is. Is it powerful? Nah. And I run functions where the Mayor turns up and oh, that's the Mayor, okay. But we exercise power in other ways, don't we? We exercise power in our relationships. Someone slights us, I won't talk to you. We exercise power in other ways, don't we? We exercise power by withholding friendship or by lording it over people or controlling, but we, we all sorts of things we exercise power because we're looking to my interests. Opposite to Jesus. Think of the one who has all the raw power in the universe. At his disposal, 12 legion of angels. And that's just for an instant in the garden. At his disposal, he spins planets into orbit. He knows and names galaxies. That is raw power. And yet he, with that kind of power, what does he do? How can I serve you? See, we humans, when we entertain a thought of having power, we grasp at things like fruit on the tree. We grasp at power. What's best for me? What makes me happy? Not Jesus. And we can have this mindset by looking to his humility. And yet there's more. Here's the extraordinary thing about this hymn of Christ. Not only is he humble, by God in the contrast, empty himself by becoming a servant. So there is the contrast. That's the emptying himself. God of all, becomes small, becomes a human, becomes a servant. But it doesn't stop there, does it? That's not where his humility stops. It's not where it ends. Because then we read verse 8, he is humble even to death on a cross. When you think of the crucifixion of Jesus, what do you think of the pain? Do you think of the nails driven through his hands? We sung that in our first song. 
That, that first song, Nothing Can I Boast In. It's almost the tune, the tune almost, I'm not trying to be critical of songwriters, I'm not a songwriter, but the tune almost doesn't fit. At God's perfect time, nails driven through his hands. It doesn't feel like the kind of soundtrack for that. But the crucifixion's pain is not in the nails and the hands. It's not. That's painful enough. And crucifixion is designed to be painful. But more than that, crucifixion is designed not just to suffocate the body, but for the suffocating pain of shame. Crucifixion is designed to humiliate you. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree, on a cross. The cross is the pain of shame. Crucifixion is designed for humiliation. A public display before everyone. Look at this person. Look at them in their dying breaths and shame them, scorn them, mock them. And friends, he does that willingly on the cross in your place for you. He shoulders your sin and your shame. He takes the blame. Do you know what shame feels like? I suspect you do. Do you know what shame feels like? It's heavy. It's suffocating. For some, it's inescapable. Do you know what it would be like to have the shame of all your life on display then for everyone to see? Put it on the screen. Broadcast it on all channels worldwide. Have people tweeting about it, Facebooking about it, Instagramming it, hashtagging it. And yet... Jesus takes all your shame and he goes through that for you. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is actually the judge. And so as we like to say week in, week out, get this. When you look to the cross, the judge gets judged. In your place, in mine, for you. He takes your shame, your blame, and he does it because he loves you. And so Paul writes, that's the mindset. That's the mindset we get to have now. Here is the Son of God, the perfect man who goes from the highest place of glory to the lowest place on earth. There's nowhere lower you can go than the cross. There's nowhere lower on earth you can go than the cross. And he, 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 he says, where is the lowest place I can go for these people? That's where I'm going. In Luke's gospel, we read in the middle of Luke's gospel, Luke 9, we see Luke describes it, Jesus directs his face towards Jerusalem. He goes to the cross. He doesn't wander there, doesn't stroll there. He says, that's where I'm going. I'm going to the lowest place on earth. And Paul writes here, this is the God who loves us. 
Jesus doesn't just swap having the form of God with a form of servant. He displays what God is like, not just in humility, but in humiliation. This is extraordinary, friends. If, if we don't break out in worship, like if, if we don't sing in song at the end of this, there's something wrong with us. When you look at God and you say, this is what God is like, he humbles himself, he lets himself get humiliated, that's got to weed you out for the rest of your life. That's got to bend your brain and move your heart towards worship. To see God humble himself and be humiliated to save you. Our dear neighbours, three doors down, are building a building there. For them to think of God becoming a human, abhorrent. For them to think God humbles himself, unthinkable. For them to think God to die on a cross in humiliation, no way. For us, the only way. Isaiah 53 verse 12, Chris read it earlier. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. The cross of Christ achieved our salvation. And now Paul says to a church that hears that preached week in and week out, we know this, don't we? We know the gospel, friends. As I look around, I see friends, I see people here week in and week out. We know this. Now Paul says, you know it, now believe it and have your mind shaped by it. This is our mindset now. This is who we are. This is our culture, our church culture. This is our culture of community with humility. We are to think literally like Jesus. And then we see this Jesus is Lord, verses 9 to 11. That phrase, Jesus is Lord, is a gospel summary. There are many gospel summaries in the Bible. Like if you wanted to say, explain to someone the gospel, you could get the whole Bible. This last week, um, I was visiting a friend in hospital. And the hospital friend is a Christian. And he has a, a, a roommate who's looking into Christianity. And so actually, week in, week out, I've been going there. And a couple of times a week, three times a week sometimes, I go in there. And Christian brother and I, we open the Bible and we explain the gospel to our friend. Now, we could start at the beginning, which would be a good place to start and read all 66 books, but we don't always have the time. So to get us started, there's some gospel summaries. You could start with, well, Mark's gospel is the shortest one. But if you have very little time at all, a great gospel summary is just three words. And it's in Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11. It's Jesus is Lord. Why is that a gospel summary? Well, firstly, because I'm not. That's a good summary. It's good that I'm not Lord. It's good that you're not Lord because that would go very bad for us all. It's good that the President is not Lord and the Prime Minister is not Lord and the Premier is not Lord. That would go terribly bad for us all. It's good that Jesus is Lord because He is good and gracious and humble. That is good news. But it's also a gospel summary because we see what has happened. Verse 9, Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. See, God's name in the Old Testament is Yahweh. 
As we read in Isaiah 52, 53, as we read in the Old Testament, every time that, that God's people Israel wrote down that word, they were so revering of that word, reverent for that word, they, they didn't want to write down the consonants that describe what we call Yahweh. They're just like, we can't use God's name, we'll just use Lord. So you see in your Bibles, it often capitalizes L-O-R-D, Lord. That's a translation of, or, or a transliteration of, or using a different word for Yahweh. And now we see in Philippians 2, Jesus Christ is given the name above all names. He's given, he's God, he's Yahweh. But then get this, more incredibly, not only is he God, he is Yahweh, and he's given this title, Lord, Jesus, Lord, but he is worshipped with what name in Philippians 2, verse 10? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. He's worshipped with his human name. The human who is God, the God-man, is worshipped somewhere, friends, in the universe right now, sits on a throne, a human. Somewhere in the universe, there is a flesh and blood, resurrected, Jesus Christ, you can handshake, high-five, hug. He's God, he is man, he's in the universe, he's coming back, and currently he's reigning as Lord. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Look at that, to the glory of God the Father. That just stands out for a moment, doesn't it? Jesus Christ is exalted. He is king of the universe. And yet, who is he very happy to get the glory God the Father. Even in his exaltation, Jesus is so other person centered. Even in his exaltation, he doesn't look at himself, he looks at God the Father. Glorify him, glorify the Spirit. The Spirit glorifies Christ and points back to the Father. This is the humility of God. We don't have the time or the wherewithal to grasp this, but just look at this for one moment this morning. And worship Him. And friends, as we finish, this is what our community needs. Our church community and our region needs community with humility like this. We need this mindset among us. Humility is opposite to the hubris of our world. The humble brag. The humble brag is interested in the pecking order. The humble brag is interested in still me. That's not true humility. But here's the problem of trying to get humility. If we just try and get humility by reading the book, finding the right guru, getting a mentor, if we're trying to get humility by getting it from someone else, you're chasing a phantom. Because as soon as you think you've got humility, what are you doing? You're focusing on yourself. I wrote the book on humility. I even read a book this week on humility. I read it again. I read it a few years ago from a friend, someone who taught me at Bible college. And he says in the preface, I want to thank these people. Writers often do. I thank, you know, my lecturers at college, my day, etc., etc. Humble people who did not presume to write a book on humility like I did. Like, he gets it, right? If you're chasing humility, it's a dangerous chase because if you just want that, you won't get it. What do we need? We need to have Christ. 
That's how you get humility, by getting Jesus. Humility is the person of Jesus Christ. God is not a grasper. He's a giver. Humble generosity. Have this mind among yourselves. Humility is the fruit of seeking someone who is Lord. It's Jesus. Humility is therefore having the fruit of Jesus big in your life. How do you tell a truly humble person? Because Jesus is so big in their life that you matter in their life. Jesus is so big in their life, it shapes the way they talk with you, talk to you, talk about you. Humility is so big because Jesus is so big that it shapes the way they relate to you, that they would actually have your interests above their own. That's true humility. It's truly looking to Jesus. And that will mean for our communities of church, it'll mean this. It means having humility, having Jesus, will be a church of people who don't seek our own personal preferences. Now that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because we have personal preferences. I like this to be done this way. And I like wooden pulpits or I like blue chairs, green chairs, grey chairs. We have all three, by the way, just in case. But we know personal preferences are bigger than that. Humility is not seeking my personal preferences, but how can I seek to love you? What do you need? Humility means that we'll actually sing praise of Jesus. We'll find our true happiness in a life of worshipping Jesus. Remember, friends, what do we get saved from? We got saved from our own selfishness. Selfishness kills us. Jesus saves us. Having Jesus at the centre of our worships will change our humility. It will see us being more content. The humility of having Jesus will mean we won't actually tear others down and just slightly elevate ourselves. We'll actually seek to encourage people. How is your posture towards people? When you, let's practice this, when you welcome people at church, you're like, okay. Or do you actually, I'm actually glad to see you. I know you've been away for a couple of weeks, you've been sick, I'm glad to see you. I've got all the time of the day because it's Sunday. I plan to be with God's people. Let's hang out today. Let's talk today. We've got, we, we don't have to close this building until well, probably midnight tonight. How can I stay a little bit longer to talk with you a little bit longer, to listen to you a little bit longer, to then pray with you a little bit longer? Humility seeks other person's interests because that's what Jesus does. The humility of being like Jesus will be able to admit things like, you know what, I'm often wrong. I'm always weak, but I'm in Christ and I'm welcoming him and so are you. The humility of having Jesus will mean we actually want to serve in ministry teams. We want to serve in ministry. We actually seek to serve others. We don't hear the word roster and go, I'm grown. We hear the word roster and go, point me out at how can I serve people? 
And the humility of Jesus means, of course, we don't need to humble brag. We don't need to show people our humility. Because Jesus has already seen us. And he's already loved us by laying his life down for us. He loves you. And he says to you and I, we get to now forsake ourselves for the sake of the other. For he has done that for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us to have this mind among ourselves. Because Jesus is among us. We thank you, Lord, for your love that came low, that came in humility and humiliation for us. What love for us we see in Jesus humbles us. And we ask that he would be bigger in our lives, our hearts, help us to be humble like him, to have our whole lives in gathered and sent worship with a mindset like him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.